Willkommen zum Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you this week? Wie geht's? Guten Morgen. Um, I am absolutely fantastic, Gary, as per usual, because the world is fucking great. Um, we are still locked down. We are still under house arrest. But look, it's fucking sunny out. And that's that's the main thing in, in this world. Once the sun is out, happiness abode, you know? But anyway, Gary. Let's not talk about, you know, our lives. People don't need to hear about it. They're bored enough with these podcasts as is. Um, so what are we talking about today? Like, what is the, the topic of conversation? We are talking about the pharmacological and surgical management of obesity, i.e. what drugs and surgical interventions might be of use for people with obesity. And again, the reason we're talk we're touching on this is not because we want to give medical or surgical advice very clearly. This is not the place for that. But we just wanted to round out the discussion that we've been having for many, many months about obesity because we've touched on the role of nutrition. We've touched on the role of exercise. We've touched on all the pathophysiology of obesity, everything that contributes to it. And this is really the final pillar. Um, and the reason it's important to discuss, I guess, is because um, I guess weight loss pills, weight loss drugs generally get a bad rap. And I think for good reason, because many of them have failed or have led to more adverse effects than beneficial effects over the years. And I guess if you come from the fitness industry, you probably you know, have some sort of stigma associated with or directed towards weight loss pills generally. Because when you think about supplements for example that are uh, advertised for weight loss the vast majority 99% do absolutely nothing okay um, but there are some uh, drugs pharmaceutical interventions that actually can be helpful for people with obesity and it would be a shame to allow that kind of stigma directed towards supplements to override a potentially useful intervention uh, for these people so First things first, I think that one of the things we wanted to mention briefly was the fact that all of this still comes back to the discussion of energy balance. And I think that this is also one of the things that we, one of the reasons we wanted to discuss pharmacology is because despite the fact that you're using drugs in you know, super physiological doses, it still all acts through that calories in, calories out. The vast majority of the drugs that we will be discussing will do effectively one of three things. Okay, they'll either increase ex energy expenditure, um, and most of them don't really do that. They like, or they'll um, decrease appetite. Okay, or increase uh, fullness or satiety in response to food, or they will re reduce the absorption from intestinal tract. So all of these. The things you can see are either you know increasing calories out or decreasing calories in so it's it's again it, it all comes back to that very very basic equation but as we know and as we've discussed in this series as a whole there are many other things that tie in with calories and calories out so just keep that in mind as we head into this conversation yeah and i just want to put this out before we start this podcast that i am most definitely an idiot gary for sure is an idiot so absolutely I would not be taking this as medical advice, just straight up. Like the two of us are actual idiots. Um, okay. However, we are both interested in this stuff. 
I like the fucking biochemistry stuff. Gary, I don't know what he likes. He's a bit fucking weird. Um, but he apparently likes this stuff as well. And I think this is a good lesson in terms of reinforcing that calories in, calories out perspective. But also I think it is a good lesson in terms of realizing that, well, big pharma gets this bad rep, you know, and people think that they're trying to, you know, get as much money from the people as possible. They are actually still providing rather beneficial drugs and um, to people and this is one of those things where again like if you look at it even in ireland i think it's what 60 percent of the population are overweight or obese like and it's not like that's a decreasing number it's an increasing number so if we have another line of intervention you know maybe diets have failed this individual maybe i don't know fucking training interventions have failed this inter- this individual lifestyle whatever like i would still like to have something else in the back pocket to be like we have another line of helping this individual, right? So that's my perspective on it. Now, again, I am obviously aware that this stuff can be abused. This stuff can be a first line intervention for some people and they don't make the necessary adjustments in other areas of their life. However, look, you're going to find this stuff online anyway. And I'd rather people got a a smarter, again, we're still idiots now, a smarter breakdown of this stuff. So you can at least tie it back into, you know, your overall understanding, whether you're an individual who's just interested in this stuff, or you are a coach yourself who potentially deals with people that are overweight and in particular obese, and that are probably likely to engage in some of these things, like potentially, I don't say likely, uh, potentially engage in these things at their doctor's supervision, not at yours. (laughs) And, and also just as a, uh, a thing that like, again, like myself and Gary enjoy, it's like, look, obviously we're in the health and fitness industry. We have lots of friends who do recreational drugs. Um, and then we also have lots of friends that do bodybuilding drugs. And a lot of these things are in the bodybuilding world um, or potentially will become part of the bodybuilding world because they, again, work on the same stuff, the energy in, energy out stuff that dictates your body composition and um, well not your body composition i should say dictates your body weight um, and obviously that's something that like bodybuilders fitness enthusiasts are interested in right so with that out of the way i actually think we're not going to touch on the first uh the first stuff that we're going to touch on is not actually related to obesity specifically in terms of the management of that but i wanted to just you know touch on these drugs first of all to kind of highlight that it's not all just about weight management because when you're dealing with an obese individual or you are an obese individual, one of the things that you really want to care about, probably above all else, is your health. You know, like that's that's what we're actually, that's the, the intervention that we care about. It's not about, oh, let's try to get you down to 6% body fat and whatever. Like, who cares about that? Like the, old, the, the actual goal is to increase your health. Um, and obviously weight loss is one of those ways or weight management is one of those ways. But ultimately we want you to be in a healthy position regardless of weight. Now, of course, look, we've talked about it before. We've discussed it at those heavier body weights, at those higher body weights, that is less and less likely. However, you know, maybe we do have an individual that has tried dieting. They can't get control of their hunger. They can't get control of their exercise, their lifestyle, whatever happens. And they still want to try to, you know, not die. And I'd like to, again, have interventions that could potentially help this individual. So with that in mind, the first thing, again, in these health supplements, or sure, I should not say supplements, in these health medications, the first thing is like a high cholesterol medication, right? Like a statin, statin intervention. You know, again, if heart disease is one of the main 
contributors to death full stop um, in the world um, and also especially in relevant or especially relevant to those dealing with obesity um, it makes sense that this is potentially an intervention that we could very easily bring in um, that helps lower the risk of you know dying of heart disease for these individuals um, so a high cholesterol medication statins are just the, the, the one that most people know I'm sure there's ton of other interventions that you could talk about with this um but i'm just statin great you know if you have high uh, ldl i don't see why you're not do you have any thoughts on that gary no thoughts on that gary sorry it uh caught out there for a second i think you asked me what are my thoughts on uh statin yes <laughs> yes <laughs> statins are uh widely prescribed and um, pretty effective drugs. So uh, yes, there's absolutely a role for um, lipid lowering drugs in someone who has obesity, um, provided there is a relevant uh, risk there. Okay, so if someone has obesity, their BMI is elevated, but they're, they have low LDL, you know, high HDL, low triglycerides, then it's not necessarily the case that uh, it would be useful then, unless someone has had a prior cardiovascular event, for example. Um, so yeah the indications for such drugs effectively vary depending on you know family history whether you smoke uh, what your current lipid levels are whether or not you've had a previous event etc okay so there's many different things that would inform that decision and lipid lowering drugs do go beyond just statins as well so um, it it does really vary by country as well because uh, some of the drugs such as the PCSK9 inhibitors are very effective but also very uh, expensive so you know, it depends on you know, whether you have uh, healthcare insurance, are you going to pay for this drug outright, etc. Um, so yeah, lipid lowering uh, therapy is, is definitely something that would be relevant in the context of obesity. Yeah, this is, like, again, this probably holds true for the vast majority of the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Like, we might talk about a sp- specific drug or maybe class of drugs, like I just said, statins there. But realistically, look, the free market uh, prevails and you know there's loads of companies out there that want to solve this issue so there's probably multiple avenues towards actually again in this case like lowering like blood lipids and lowering your cholesterol and like there's definitely loads of different companies trying to get that business so there's loads of different drugs they might be the exact same type of drug like a different statin like a torvastatin or there's a load of different statins but there also might be true different mechanisms and you know again some of them might be more beneficial some of them might have different side effects again expense the cost all that kind of stuff like has to be taken into account and that's again why you consult with your doctor for this stuff we just want to be like right these are again something to be thinking about the next thing then is high blood pressure medication right um such as uh arbs or arbs i call them arbs i think you call them arbs gary what are your thoughts on that like well, i like uh, uh telmasartan but what are your thoughts i just say angiotensin receptor blockers simple <laughs> yeah just say the full word but yeah again you know very 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 similar discussion to the lipids discussion where uh, the management of high blood pressure there's so many different medications you know ranging from as you say the arbs to ace inhibitors calcium channel blockers uh, beta blockers uh, diuretics etc so there's many different uh, types of drugs and again that would vary depending on uh, the cause of your hypertension and also 
um, even ethnicity, you know, the actual uh, prescriptions, the, the line of, of uh, first line drugs, second line drugs, etc., actually varies um, by ethnicity. It also varies by age and also the severity of hypertension. And so, you know, for 90, uh, that's going to require a different treatment to if it's 180 over 110, let's say, um, you know, and, and obviously that all comes back to diet and lifestyle as well there too. But, but yeah, uh, plenty of different drugs there in, in those classes of antihypertensives, but again, definitely something that's relevant to, in the context of obesity. Mm. And then in the next one, uh, moving on from that, because look, the whole podcast is basically going to be us talking about drugs. Um, some of them are really cool. Some of them are just like, okay, look. Again, this is not a high blood pressure medication podcast. We're going to get through these so we can get onto yeah. the actual obesity drugs. But again, like that doesn't mean that that's any less relevant to the actual issue. Like again, if you were an obese individual and look, your blood lipids are fantastic. Your, I don't know, cardiovascular fitness is fantastic. All these other measures are fantastic, but you just have high blood pressure. Like obviously that's going to be more relevant to you. But unfortunately, I can't give generic advice, right? First of all, I can't give advice in this area because I'm not a doctor, but I also can't just be like, oh, I'm generically going to talk about this stuff because it is so specific to the actual individual and then also you know the various uh, whatever classes or whatever that they fall into in terms of like again age race uh, ethnicity if you will and like all that all, all those kind of things it's like they they are all relevant and a competent doctor is going to be the one that needs to go through that with you taking into account your case history etc right but anyway look the next one then is metformin right and uh, this is we'll, we'll call it a, a blood glucose lowering drug although it does far more for individuals than just that and um, obviously it's mainly prescribed to diabetics which again is relevant to individuals that are dealing with obesity right but also which is really interesting and we'll come back to it in another section and um, uh, metformin does actually like modulate the hypothalamic uh, like appetite regulatory centers in the brain so that's obviously really relevant to um, obesity if you are now in a position where you're not as hungry anymore and that's something that you will see as well documented when people go on metformin where they're just like oh i'm not actually really that hungry anymore which is obviously great for helping them manage their blood glucose to an extent obviously you know you, you still need to eat stuff and um, but if they're just not eating as much then they're able to get a handle on their blood glucose a little bit easier and then obviously in the context of obesity that is a beneficial thing because again, we're modulating that calories in calories out overarching theme, you know, but also, which is also quite relevant in this case, and we'll touch on it in a, further on in the, the podcast. And um, it also has alterations in the gut microbiome, or I should say it alters the gut microbiome in potentially a beneficial way for individuals that are dealing with uh, obesity. Um, and look, the, the mechanisms of all of this are not as well understood as you would like them to be, um, or rather as we would like them to be. And like, I know some of the like top researchers in this field and uh, even they would be like, oh, I think it works through this. And this other person who's, you know, again, top researcher would be like, well, I think the main mechanism is this. So like it works through multiple things. However, in the context of obesity and it's specifically in the context of individuals with obesity that are dealing with blood glucose regulatory issues, metformin can be a fantastic drug. Again, if it's prescribed by your doctor. Yes. Anything else to say on metformin? No. Uh, no, I guess just one kind of uh, point that's going to be relevant to other uh, classes of drugs as well. Um, and that is that obesity may not exist on its own. And for example, if someone has um, obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes associated with that, 
you might be looking at uh, the relevance of a given drug, not just related to whether or not it causes weight loss, but also glycemic control. So like you say there, metformin um, is something that might be prioritized in a, in a patient like that because of the glycemic control element. And the same thing could be said for other drugs like the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 agonists. So there are some, the GLP-1 agonists we'll definitely touch on again later on, uh, but that's just an important uh, point to consider because there may be drugs that will be used in the context of diabetes that may actually uh, potentially promote weight gain or make weight loss more difficult, um, such as uh, insulin, such as sulfonylureas, and one class of drugs that we actually discussed in a previous podcast, and that was the thiazolidinodione. I'm so glad you said that because I cannot say that. <laughs> the thiazolidinodione. And the interesting, I think, in that podcast was that despite the fact that they promote weight gain or can promote weight gain, they actually reduce liver fat and increase uh, insulin sensitivity. So those drugs might be used in the context of someone who has uh, type 2 diabetes, let's say. Uh, but in if you were trying to uh, approach this from the perspective of, all right, this is where we, we're trying to target obesity and, and reduce obesity, then you might actually, or a doctor might actually um, shift the therapeutic emphasis from some of those drugs to more of uh, metformin, as we say, maximize the metformin dose as tolerated, uh, GLP-1 agonists, SGLT-2 inhibitors, uh, et cetera. So um, yeah, I, the, the, I'm just bringing that point up because the kind of treatment decisions can become complicated by that stuff because there's also, we're going to touch on a number of um stimulant or sympathomimetic drugs later on. And one of the things to consider there would be, for example, if the patient has hypertension or heart disease already or arrhythmias, you might not actually want to be giving those drugs because it could actually worsen some of those um, conditions that are associated with obesity. So as you can see, these decisions end up being kind of complex because of what goes along with the state of obesity. Yeah, and this is actually really important to understand as well. First of all, when you said metformin, you were like, oh, we bring it up to the, like, we'll call it maximal tolerable dose or whatever. Like, first of all, to like, what does that actually mean? It's like, there's, you know, after a certain amount, there are side effects to these drugs. Yes. Well, there's probably side effects to the drugs at all stages. However, there's a certain point where it's like the side effects are outweighing the actual effects, you know? And I always say this when talking about drugs, even though I just said like side effects, like there are no side effects. There are only effects right? Like you can't get, you can't just go, oh, these are the side effects because I don't like them. And these are the effects because I like them. It's like, you're getting all of these, you know, that's just the effect of this drug, right? And that is something that like doctors have to deal with all the time, where it's like, you have to manage all these effects that you don't necessarily want. And you can't just escalate the dose and escalate the dose until you get to a stage where you're like, oh, look, yeah, you have all these side effects um, that are just not what we want, but you're getting a continually greater effect of this, you know, whatever we do want. Like that's, if you're shitting yourself 24 seven, like you're not going to stay on that drug, you know, like if that's a side effect, like it's not going to be a drug that you stay on, right? Even if it is helping your whatever, right? Um, so that is something to take into uh, account. But then also, which is really important, a lot of these have like, drug on drug interactions you know it's not just a case of like oh i'm going to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and i'm just going to combine this like therapy uh, that i've made up in my mind and said oh this is going to be the way to fix the issue and um, it's just not going to work like because again they have drug on drug interactions and then also they have we'll call it drug on human interactions because it's not like obesity is this one singular thing like gary said you could have obesity and you might be thinking oh i need to i don't know 
manage my weight. So I'm going to pick from that like stimulant category, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but then also you have to take into account that you have heart disease in your family. You have high blood pressure. You have all these, like you were born with a hole in your heart. I don't know, fucking any of these things. It's like, you can't just pick and choose without actually looking at the, the case history of that individual, you know? So it, it is more complex than just, you know, here's a few drugs that work for this issue. It's like, no, like if they really worked for this issue and they had no effects like that we didn't want, we'd have already solved the obesity epidemic. You know, if you think a company who has a drug that solves all of this stuff with no side effects, um, I think they would be making fucking bank off this stuff, you know, like everyone would be on that drug. Right. But anyway, it doesn't exist. So we're going to continue with the podcast. The other thing now, the the next bit that I'm just going to touch on before we actually get into the, the real obesity drugs. And there are a lot of supplements, like just, you know, generic supplements that you can get in a supplement store or buy online or whatever that potentially do have beneficial effects for uh, managing obesity. Like berberine, we just touched on metformin has some similar qualities in terms of blood glucose management. And however, I'm hesitant to just say like, oh yeah, go ahead and get berberine because it does have other effects as well. And while it is uh, beneficial from the perspective of blood glucose um, management, um, I don't know if it does have the same effects overall in terms of your uh, reduced appetite, your the, the changes in the gut microbiome, because I don't think there's as much research on it because it's not a a drug it's a you know a, a plant derived thing um so it's like they can't patent it so we don't have the research so even though you'll see online people saying oh this is fantastic blah 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 um it could solve the obesity epidemic solve diabetes solve whatever it's like okay well show me the research for that and they can't you know um it also you might mean- reduce your gains which is incredibly weak yeah i was gonna just i didn't want to mention that but yes obviously but look even like potentially metformin does that as well i know there's studies again that say that it doesn't but look ultimately they're going to tell you that it doesn't as well you know it's like it's gonna work for your muscles as well but uh, anything that's like you know upregulates we'll call it like we'll say through that ampk ampk pathway like it potentially does interact with your ability to build muscle but that's the case with all weight loss drugs it's just going to interact with your ability to build muscle because it goes back to that simple fundamental equation that we've talked about multiple multiple times like calories in calories out like you can't build muscle without enough calories and it's the exact same with trying to build muscle in a a calorie deficit like if you're in a weight loss phase and you're like oh i'm going to build copious amounts of muscle it's not going to happen, right? So the same types of drugs that we're going to use for weight loss work through the same mechanisms as a calorie deficit because you know most of them are actually trying to elicit a calorie deficit. So they're going to limit your ability to build muscle, you know? But anyway, on berberine, do you have any other uh, thoughts? Nah. Fantastic. Then two other ones, which are just you know, like foundational kind of supplements for a lot of people. And that's a fiber supplement and a, a protein supplement, right? Like whey protein or milk protein or whatever. Right. And you might be thinking, why are we covering those things? But again, they are, we'll call them lifestyle interventions or diet interventions that are actually you know, fairly effective. You know, fiber is really quite filling and it also has effects on like lowering your blood cholesterol. Right. So it's like this has you could you would almost call this like a medical intervention if you have something like uh, whatever that thing is called, a psyllium husk um, like a fiber supplement of that, like that could be very effective at, you know, helping you feel fuller for longer, like a lot of these drugs do. And then also lowering your blood cholesterol, like your LDL cholesterol. And how is that any different than a medication? You know, really, it's not. And like 
obviously it is because it's not a medication, but at the same time, it's like, that is an intervention that you are doing that has similar effects. Right. And the same with protein again, very filling also potentially helps with the building of muscle, which then provides a sink for blood glucose, all the stuff that we normally talk about when we talk about the benefits of building muscle. Right. And there are some obviously over the counter. Well, some of them are over the counter. Some of them are gray area stimulants like uh, ephedrine, uh, yohimbine or rowalcine. Um, like they, they are stimulants to an, ex- an extent. Um, again, I'm, I'm kind of less, less, uh, enthusiastic about all the stimulants and um, for weight loss, because again, there's cardiovascular issues with this population generally, and it's not beneficial. Um, however, you will also see them often put out there in uh, weight loss pills and different things like that. So it is to be noted and obviously in the bodybuilding realm or the health and fitness realm or whatever you want to call this stuff like those drugs are used um or those supplements are used to elicit an effect in terms of weight loss and so it is it is something to be aware of do you have any thoughts on that gary nope fantastic right now we can actually get into the category of the stimulants and one of these again is a supplement that you could take um, over the counter. However, I'm classing it in the stimulants just to kind of break in the conversation, even though I did just touch on uh, like ephedrine and stuff. And that is caffeine, right? Because you don't often think of that as like an intervention. But again, in this class of stimulants, like what's the goal of a stimulant? The goal is to make you have more energy or make you feel like you have more energy. Get that uh, adrenergic signaling going. So it's like you're more kind of hyped up. You're able to move around more. Thus, you're able to burn more calories day to day. It also has generally the effect of, you know, dropping appetite a little bit, like all of those stimulants. Again, if we just go back to our basic, like nervous system 101, like you have your sympathetic nervous system, and then you have your parasympathetic nervous system, your parasympathetic being your rest and digest and your sympathetic being your like, you know, ready to fight type deal, you know? Um, if you are stimulating your nervous system in a way that's putting it in this kind of like, I'm ready to fight, you are inherently taking away energy, we'll say, uh, from the like rest and digest stuff, right? They're, they're kind of antagonistic to each other, right? And that's not truly the case. Again, simplifying things here. Um, so if you are taking something that stimulates you, you are doing less stuff that is like, you know, rest and digest stuff, right? So you generally don't feel as hungry when you're taking these things. And anyone who's taking coffee, you know, in the morning and been like, oh yeah, like I've got a little bit of like hunger suppression, like people who do fasting, like intermittent fasting or time-restricted fasting, they'll often drink coffee in the morning as their first meal. So they get a little bit of that appetite suppression, like a black coffee in the morning, just get a little bit of that appetite suppression. So you could call this an intervention, a drug intervention. You know, it's like, this is, people are using it for drug-like qualities, And it also has these effects that would be beneficial for obesity related issues, right? So it's like, this is an obesity drug, right? And again, most people don't think of it like that because most people are, you know, aware of like, oh, I'll just drink my caffeine. I'll just drink my coffee in the morning. That's not an obesity drug. However, look, it does fall into this category of stimulants. Do you have any thoughts on that, Gary? Uh, No, I don't think so. That's good. It's because you still drink coffee or on that drug. Yeah, uh, just stick with the black coffee and not the frappuccinos, like, and you'll be fine. Yeah, that's obviously a really important thing to note. Where, like, if you're adding 800 calories to your your coffee in the morning or whatever, like, that's obviously not going to result in any kind of weight loss. And um, even if you do get the kind of uh, <clears throat> stimulant effects or whatever, if you're adding a lot of extra calories to your diet, again, going back to that calories in, calories out equation, 
it's not beneficial, right? Now, the next few, like there's a load of these drugs and I just picked a few of these because, not because they're anything in particular, like, oh, they're really fantastic ones or whatever. Like I'm sure you could find a million and one different stimulants that are potentially beneficial in this case. But again, we have to look at all the other stuff that's going on, the heart related stuff. So like, you're not going to get some of the other drugs that I could definitely think of. And we will cover one or two of them later on. Um, like stimulant type drugs, you're not going to get them, you know, uh, done in a study. You're going to get them given out in a study because they probably will result in some cardiac events um, because they're like very stimulating, right? But some of the other ones that are a little bit less, we'll call stimulating, um, obviously, again, depending on the dose, et cetera. And um, there's uh, fentramine, uh, fendimetrazine, uh, diethylpropione, uh, and fentramine topiramate uh, combo and um, some of those again like you'll see you can see them if you look up any weight loss studies in terms of like the pharmacological interventions they're used they seem to be quite effective some of them more than others again they're doing the exact same thing as coffee here uh, which is our you know generic stimulant it's causing this stimulant effect it's causing this like cns like we'll call it uh, it's not cns it's more of your uh your uh, sympathetic nervous system upregulation. It's giving you more of a like, okay, get up and go move around. So you move around more and thus you lose weight. There is obviously some other uh, stuff that's going on. Like, you know, your heart rate goes up. So even if you don't actually move around more, like your body is technically moving around more. So you are kind of burning more calories on a day-to-day basis. And like, you probably notice yourself, like if you have a fucking a couple of cups of coffee per day, like you notice your heart rate is a little bit elevated. You probably notice that your body temperature as a result is a little bit elevated. Like that's all bur- burning calories. Even if you're not actually moving around more, like it's still contributing to your overall caloric expenditure. Even if again, like you're not doing any formalized exercise as a result of all of that. Do you have any comment on those ones, Gary? Um, yeah, I guess just, just knowing as well that like the, the kind of central effects here are quite important, especially when you're talking about like the fentramine terpiramate. Um, I don't think that's prescribed in Ireland, to be honest. Um, I know it's prescribed in the US, but I'm not entirely sure on that, to be honest. Um, but yeah, there, there are central effects there in terms of like acting on reward-related pathways and satiety-related pathways in the brain. And that's the case for a lot of the drugs that tend to be effective. Um, generally, it's assisting with the other behavioral interventions like trying to reduce um, overall caloric intake and obviously it goes without saying that we're not saying you should take any of these drugs anyway because it's not the purpose of this podcast but with all of these drugs there are different side effects and and when you talk about uh, topiramate there are teratogenic effects in terms of um, pregnancy like you don't want to be taking it during pregnancy and that's the case with many of these drugs they tend to be contraindicated during pregnancy um but yeah, it's uh, that's a doctor's discussion, really. Yeah, and then also it's really important what you noted in, in terms of like most of these drugs, they probably do have multiple mechanisms of action. And sure. while some of them were like, oh yeah, look, this is what we're thinking. Like these are in the stimulant category. Like they might have other effects in different areas of the body. And that is just, like again, we have to categorize them somehow, you know? So like this is not a full discussion is what I'm saying, right? Now, the next uh, one yeah. uh, is thyroid, thyroid hormone, right? Which again, most people would actually be aware of this one because most people think that, oh, the reason that I am overweight is because I have a sluggish thyroid, 
right? Or I have low thyroid, which is just not really the case for the majority of people. Like, yes, for sure. There are individuals that have a sluggish thyroid. They have some sort of issue with their thyroid where they're not producing enough thyroid hormone. And as a result, weight gain is a little bit easier because thyroid plays a role in, we'll call it stimulating. That's why I have it in this category. You know, it's kind of like making you move around, making you do stuff. Um, however, I don't think in most individuals that are obese, they have low thyroid hormone. In fact, like if you actually look at it, um, eating more is one of the easiest ways to get your body to produce more thyroid hormone. Right. And now obviously there is a limit to that, you know, it's the same with insulin, like eating more obviously is the, the best way to get your body to produce more insulin. Right. However, again, there is a point of diminishing returns and it's like, you can only produce so much in a given day across a given year, whatever. Right. Um, and it's kind of the same with the thyroid output. Um, so while you might think if you have a fundamental or, a, a, you know, a cursory understanding of how the body works, the different things in it, and you might've heard that people say like, oh, I have a sluggish thyroid. Um, and that's my, the reason for my weight gain. Like it's just not an intervention that is probably likely to be all that effective in treating obesity. Right. Even though you would think, again, looking at thyroid hormone and you read it on your like Wikipedia page or whatever, it's like, oh, it has all these effects. Like, you know, people who go on thyroid hormone generally lose weight. Right. Which, again, is, is true. Um, but for an individual that has obesity and has normal functioning thyroid, like it's it's probably not going to do a huge pile to just give them artificial thyroid or sorry, synthetic thyroid. And um, now it might. And again, that's something that you want to discuss with your doctor. However, do you really want to go on hormone replacement therapy potentially for the rest of your life and um, just to lose some weight? Because at least with all these other drugs, like you could potentially come off them. Um, well, a lot of them anyway, but like with hormone replacement therapy, now it's not really the case with thyroid because you can't actually come off it and your body will generally start producing thyroid again. Um, but it is one of those ones where I start thinking a little bit more of like, okay, is this something that you want to be on for the rest of your life? And, um, but what are your thoughts on using thyroid to help with the management of obesity? And look, I'm categorizing it as thyroid there. That's yeah. a relatively broad category and uh, being generous, but like you understand the sentiment. Yeah. And it's, it's and thyroid um, hormone therapy, you could say is effectively one of those that lies in the graveyard of obesity drugs, because like logically, again, you think, oh, well, thyroid people who are, who have hyper hyper thyroidism, they tend to lose weight. So let's just give people more thyroid. But the problem with that is that when you begin to do that, you also get the other complications of hyperthyroidism potentially, um, including uh, arrhythmias, for example, hypertension, bone loss, etc. So it, it's it's not really worth like if you're if you're trying to achieve weight loss from obesity, you're generally doing so for the purpose of improving health. And if you're accepting arrhythmia, hypertension, etc. as a trade off, that's clearly not really a great, uh, a great trade off, particularly when if, as you say, longer term the person might want to come off that because of those risks and then potentially might be at risk of rebound weight gain so again it, it kind of lies in the in the, the graveyard of obesity drugs really not really used frequently very frequently used by bodybuilders um and in the kind of uh, fitness physique fitness model space 
but uh, not prescribed um, for people with obesity, unless hypothyroidism is the cause, obviously. Yeah, and this is one of those ones which also has like a huge number of side effects. Um, and it's actually really interesting because like you can look at the, the health and fitness industry and you can see a lot of these side effects at play. You know, it's like it has side effects in terms of like, we'll call it like digestive health. You know, people are like, oh man, like I was dieting and I had all these like severe bloating issues and everything. It's like, yeah, of course you did because you were on thyroid hormone. Like it's like, it's not, it's not side effect free, like, <laughs> you know, um, but it's interesting that you see that, like, if you know the, 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 the drug mechanisms and all the side effects and all the, you know, whatever is going on and um, you can be looking at the, the health and fitness industry and going like, Oh, it's very interesting that you all have these side effects, you know? Um, but anyway, look, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, look, thyroid probably not overly effective for what we want in this case. Um, even though again, you know, on paper, you would think fantastic drug, right? Now the next one I'm going to get you to talk about, um, and this is actually, I'm going to call it an asthma medication, even though that's being very generous. <laughs> um, but there are also other ones that fall into this one. Like, like salbutamol is generally the one that uh, is used in uh, like inhalers and stuff, as far as I'm aware. Um, but there are other ones that are generally used for weight loss, again, by bodybuilders, by health and fitness enthusiasts, whatever. Um, and that is clenbuterol. So Gary, tell me a bit about clenbuterol. Clen, baby. <laughs> yeah, you've probably heard of this. And if you, you like, you may even not, not know the reference, but you'll see in a lot of like fitness bodybuilding memes, memes eat clen, train hard. And that's obviously a joke related to eat clean, train hard. But clen is a fat loss drug. Tren is an, you know, just because drug. ultimate man <laughs> drug. <laughs> but yeah, clenbuterol effectively falls into to a very similar category in terms of having uh, very stimulatory effects. Um, a lot of people who will be on clen will report, uh, you know, sweating a lot. You know, they'll feel their heart rate. They'll have palpitations. They might have difficulty sleeping. So again, it kind of falls into this category um, of of uh, stimulants. Uh, as Patty said, you know, it, it is in a class of drugs like uh, others, like salbutamol. Uh, which would be an inhaler for people with asthma. And that's obviously a, a much lower dose uh, or, or not as potent and it's specific to the airways because it's inhaled. Um, so yeah, that's basically it really about, about clenbuterol. Like it's not something that is going to be prescribed for obesity uh, once again, but is frequently used within the health and fitness space. So is still relevant, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have nothing else to say on that. But anyway, look, yeah. the next one then is, <laughs> this sounds pretty fucking ridiculous, but look, we know bodybuilders. We also know that a lot of them have no problem experimenting with drugs. I also know a lot of people, even in like, you know, we'll call it a logical um, or brain related uh, endeavors. They use drugs that are related to this. Uh, and the drug is uh, meth. You know, like you hear people fucking smoking meth, same drug could potentially be used as a weight loss drug, right? Like you think of your typical meth addict, right? They probably don't weigh a lot, you know? <laughs> so this is one of those things, again, falls under the category of, we'll call it stimulants um, because it has that kind of stimulating uh, effect. Um, and look, you don't actually have to be fucking smoking crystal to be getting the effects of this. Like, I'm not going to say like, oh, all these individuals with obesity, here's a fucking bowl. Let's go fucking have a, you know, uh, have a go. Um, but you can get it in actual drug form 
in terms of they literally give it to kids in like Adderall, you know, like that is literally, well, not literally, but it is basically the same drug as, as meth, right? So this is potentially a weight loss drug. Um, however, again, the side effect profile it's probably not beneficial for someone that has obesity or is even overweight, you know, like a lot of people I know personally that have taken like Adderall and other, we'll call them uh, study drugs, you know, like Ritalin and stuff. And they've ended up with, you know, issues down the line because of that. Right. So it's not without its consequences. And if you are already in a population that has a higher risk of heart disease or heart attacks or, you know, cardiovascular events, it's probably not something I would do. However, you probably will see this used in the health and fitness industry. And I say health and fitness industry liberally um, because like it does actually result, result in weight loss, right? And it also generally results in more, we'll call it adrenergic signaling, more like hype before a lift, you know? So if you're going in, you want to crush your session, you know? Like you could argue that smoking a bowl beforehand would be beneficial, right? Uh, especially given that, if it's going to lead to weight loss down the line as well, you're feeling, you're in a diet, you're in a deficit. Oh, you're feeling a little bit, you know, fatigued. You fucking have some crystal meth beforehand. <laughs> you go in just enough, you know, to you're, so you're not fucking cracked out. Um, and you go in, smash your lifts. You fucking lift like a lunatic. Also has appetite suppressing effects. So you're able to stick to your diet overall. Like if you have know anyone who has uh, ADHD, and they take something like Adderall, they'll be like, oh yeah, I just don't really feel hungry anymore until the evening, you know? Um, so all of those things you would think would be beneficial for helping treat obesity. However, you're unlikely to see this as an intervention for obesity because the side effect profile is not beneficial. Yep. And uh, our business name is actually triage method, which is actually a play on this because if you uh, have a meth OD, method you're going to end up in the triage room so that's basically what we base our whole business on exactly gary but yeah I, i'm not yeah just but if patty wants me to add anything there absolutely nothing to add don't take meth that's all really great, <laughs> not advised anyway the, the next one then again bodybuilders just seem to take all the fucking risky drugs i don't know what the fucking crack is here right the next one then is a dnp right? Which I'm not even going to get into this too much, but it is a protein uncoupler leads to, we'll call it excessive heat generation where your body is just not actually able to make energy from the energy that you're eating. You know, like the, the, the actual, like we'll say mitochondria, like again, I'm oversimplifying it here, but the mitochondria is just not effective and you're getting a lot of like proton leakage and um, where you just basically aren't making the energy that you would expect. Like you think, oh, I would burn this one gram of protein and i would get four calories of energy like it's just not happening and you're just wasting that energy to the environment as heat right and this is fucking wild because dnp used to be given out as a weight loss drug <laughs> like it literally was given out as an obesity drug back in the fucking day where you could order it not even on online because it was before the fucking internet and like you could order it from like those mail-in magazines you know like pre-1950s and stuff you know so why might you not take this? Even you're thinking, oh, it's actually really beneficial. It just all the, the only side effects is like it excessively generates some heat. You basically don't get all these calories that you've been eating. You can eat to excess. And all that happens is you just, you know, release some heat. Well, unfortunately, uh, that heat can cook you. 
Um, yep. Oh, if yeah, you take too much. much. Yeah, if you take, well, not even that, you literally just fucking cook from the inside out. <laughs> um, like, if you take too much of this, which is, again, you, it's relatively easy to do. If you take too much of this, you potentially could die. And there's no, like, I don't know of any intervention drug-wise or even, like, you know, put you in an ice bath or anything. Um, I don't know of any intervention that could potentially help you if you do overdose on DNP. You're pretty much like, you're fucked. You know, and um, you basically cook from the inside out. Like, like even if they put you in an ice bath, like your body is still wasting all of that energy, and it will continue to do so until the drug is out of your system. And this was actually a really huge issue. Uh, well, I would say a huge issue, as if thousands of people are fucking dying every day from this. But it was a bigger issue um, when they actually stopped producing DNP, um, like in, in actual fucking labs, and they started getting it from like China and stuff because. It's really hard to dose it accurately if you don't know what the actual dose that they put into this capsule or this fucking little tube or whatever they gave you. And then again, you just overdose without even realizing. But anyway, look, DMP is it's just a terrible... Don't take terrible, it. <laughs> terrible fucking drug. Would not recommend in the slightest. <laughs> so anyway, look, that's all the stimulants out of the way. There are hundreds, thousands potentially of other stimulants that we could talk about. However, ultimately for obesity, I'm just not a fan of the stimulant class. I'm just not a fan of like the side effects are just not good for what we want in this population, right? They're good for what we want in terms of they generally blunt hunger and they generally make you move more, therefore affecting both sides of the equation that we're talking about here, you know, energy in, energy out. However, the side effect profile is just generally not fucking beneficial. Before we move on, Gary, do you have anything else to say on the stimulant class? Do you think there's ever a time point where you're like, yeah, look, the stimulants make sense? Like, obviously there is at a certain point where look you can have a fucking cup of coffee if you need to <laughs> but is there a, a, any a point where you're like yeah okay the stimulant class it makes sense yeah i mean like the fentermine topiramate combo obviously but would, but that's that's not something that people are typically think about thinking about when they talk when they talk about stimulants like we're more so thinking about the the kind of clen side of the spectrum, clen thyroid hormone, uh, DNP, as we said, like if we want to put them all into that category, like, yeah, like where you start to mess with those things and like get those really driven up sympathetic nervous system effects, like effectively all of those things fall into either increasing energy production or not even energy production, just wasting energy um, or speeding up lots of processes that can lead to arrhythmias, increased stress in the heart, etc. So there's, there's big trade-offs there. And ultimately um, there's not many there that are approved uh, for, for uh, people with obesity. Yeah. And ultimately, look, if I had obesity and I was looking at pharmacological interventions, I wouldn't be picking from these classes. So I probably wouldn't recommend them personally. Right now, the next one is actually far more interesting and far more fruitful in my uh, perception of all of this stuff. And that is the drugs that are related to hunger management. Right. And there's actually fucking hundreds in this class, thousands in this class. Um, and we're not going to cover them all. We're just going to cover some interesting ones here. Um, but uh, in my mind, I'm like, look, if you can actually get a manage on hunger, and obviously, look, we just talk, talked about the stimulants. They do, to an extent, manage hunger, um, but they do it with a, a much worse side effect profile than what we want, especially when we consider that there are other drugs that potentially fall into this category of hunger management and are far more beneficial. Um, 
And look, we'll just get into the hunger drugs, right? So the first one is uh, Lorcaserin. I actually don't know a huge amount about this, but it is actually, you know, mentioned a, a lot uh, um, in relation to hunger. I haven't looked into it too much because I think there are better drugs available. However, I'm not a fucking doctor. I'm definitely not your doctor, whoever is listening to this. So if your doctor has prescribed it, they probably have a good reason to prescribe it. But what are your thoughts on that, Gary? Or do you know much about it? Yeah, it is one of the centrally acting drugs, like it's um, a serotonin receptor agonist effectively. Um, but I think it was, I think it was pulled from the market in the US, not not entirely sure. Don't think it's prescribed in Ireland or Europe. Uh, but again, it's one of those that has centrally acting uh, effects, which which is the case for a lot of the um, efficacious drugs. So, so yeah, um, pretty sure it has evidence to support its efficacy, but I'm not sure of rates of prescription now, to be honest. Fair. Anyway, look, in my mind, I'm like, that's, it's a boring drug. There's cooler ones. <laughs> that's, what, that's how I categorize these drugs. It's not whether they're effective or anything. I'm like, I just like the biochemistry of them. I'm like, that's fucking cool. Because again, I'm not a fucking doctor, so I don't have to care about the other stuff. Um, now, the ones that I think are really cool are all these like GLP agonists, you know, GLP-1 agonists or your glucagon-like peptide agonists, right? So most people, well, I say most people as if they all fucking are aware of GLP and what it does. And But most people that are into this stuff understand that GLP-1 is obviously part of this whole hunger cascade and all the stuff that's going on here. We're not going to get into that because the discussion would be far too fucking in-depth then. But there are a class of drugs, um, or I say a class of drugs, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And there are some drugs that work through this uh, as GLP-1 agonists or GLP agonists. Um, Some of them are short-acting, some of them are longer-acting. And this is actually... You, pro, most people are aware of this because it recently, well, I say well, most people, most people in the British Isles at least are aware of this because there was a lot of talk about it um, recently enough in the NHS using one of these drugs, uh, semaglutide, um, in combination with diet interventions and stuff uh, as a hunger management tool, right? And in my mind, I'm like, this is actually a fantastic drug because it basically makes people not hungry, right? And uh, as far as I'm aware, they actually originally found and then you know isolated and then synthesized from it uh, that semaglutide from a Gila monster venom, right? Which is also a fucking cool story in and of itself, you know? Like, this is a cool drug. And then how you found this drug and got it is also a fucking cool, you know, story. So in my mind, I'm like, the cool drugs, um, they increase uh, insulin secretion uh, and reduce hunger. And um, they also... Uh, enhance i suppose is the right word uh the growth of uh, beta cells in the pancreas which again is potentially really beneficial for someone who's dealing with you know blood glucose regulation issues or like all that stuff that we've talked about before in terms of like ectopic fat storage in uh, the liver pancreas etc you know um in my mind, I'm like, look, these utides uh, or glutides mm-hmm. are really beneficial. There's also uh, dulaglutide, uh, liraglutide, exenatide, uh, lixenatide. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and some of them are short acting, some of them are longer acting. Um, again, there's differences in terms of why you would choose a shorter acting one or why you would choose a longer acting one. Not going to get into it in this podcast. However, I could definitely see in the next few years, if it isn't already happening, although I, I'm I have my ear to the ground and that stuff. Uh, if it isn't already happening in the bodybuilding world, like I could definitely see them using way more short acting GLP agonists um, because it just seems like it makes dieting so much easier where you're not hungry, 
you know, like you just don't feel hungry because you are getting this GLB-1 agonism, you know? But what are your thoughts on all of these, Gary? Because I'm quite excited about these. I actually think these are, you know, a really interesting intervention. And I think over the next few years in the general obesity and weight management sphere, this will become more and more of a like first line type intervention because the side effect profile is actually relatively low. Like there's some like nausea and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, but other than that, it's like, you know, maybe some like, you know, diarrhea as well. But other than that, I'm like, look, it's fucking grand. Now, unfortunately, a lot of these have to be injected, which is, you know, obviously a barrier there and potentially cost is an issue I'm not sure on, on the cost and stuff. Um, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, like I think the the semaglutide paper was particularly uh, groundbreaking, we could say, because it was released It was released in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year, and it got shared around everywhere, like in popular press and in kind of research circles, I guess. And the results were, you know, pretty legit. And I think the good thing about that drug is that... Like the liraglutide daily injection, which is obviously pretty laborious, whereas the semaglutide is actually a weekly injection. So weekly subcutaneous injection, which means that it's a relatively um, small needle. So it's not like a big, massive, scary needle that you need to inject. So um, there's that. But I think that you, you're right in that you could see this um, potentially dra- drifting into bodybuilding circles because a weekly injection that's just subcutaneous, meaning that you don't have to put, you know, more um, uh, drugs into actual intramuscular, intramuscularly or deal with the side effects associated with oral drugs. I think that there's definitely potential there for that to drift into the bodybuilding world, but we'll see where that goes. As you say, you know, the side effect profile not too bad really like you know in terms of uh, like as as weight loss drugs go when you look at the extent of the benefit of weight loss like the, if you get the time or you're interested in this stuff do have a look at the paper in the new england journal of medicine because the graph just really stands out like there's such a a huge difference between the uh, behavior behavioral intervention alone and the behavioral intervention plus semaglutide so um yeah i think it's really interesting and as far as i know it is approved in the NHS. I'm not entirely sure. I'm pretty sure it is, as you said. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it's actually available in Ireland yet. I don't think semaglutide is available in Ireland. I think liraglutide is the main one that's used, but um, not entirely sure. But again, this is kind of more like a, this is where you just deal with kind of uh, medical politics, really, because <laughs> you can read all this research about these drugs, but then you're like, oh, what's actually available? And then uh, what's covered with my medical card, for example, and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, things are, are messy. Yeah. And especially just, this is one of those things where like, if you ever do any research on this or like, I don't mean actual research, I mean, just like trying to research this stuff yourself. Like it's so hard to sift through all those things because you don't get all the, uh, the, the, the politics around this, you know, it's like, Oh, well, why is this not covered by this, this place or this place, you know, like even just going back to like you know, everyone's dealing with now where like this AstraZeneca stuff, you know, in terms of like the European Union's, uh, you know, fallout with Britain or I should say Britain's fallout with the European Union. And then this whole like back and forth in terms of the AstraZeneca, uh, like vaccine rollout and all this, like, it's like, you don't really, like if you're looking at the, the, the papers on this stuff, you might go, oh, AstraZeneca vaccine, that's fantastic. That's the one I want to get. But because of the, the politics around it, it might not be available to you. And it's the same with all of these drugs in terms of, you know, this drug might be fantastic, but it's not available in your country. Or again, it's not covered by your medical insurance or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but in terms of the bodybuilding stuff, cause you know, that's what I think is cool. And um, like that liraglutide, 
Um, I think that's a really a lot of potential in this sphere because it's a shorter acting one which has a lot of benefit in terms of like, we'll say dieting for bodybuilding shows and stuff. Um, so I can definitely see that being like blasted out in, in the next while, if it's not already been some circles. Um, but obviously again, like all of these drugs have side effects and there we will find out the side effects uh, with bodybuilders using it as <laughs> soon enough, I suppose. Um, yeah, they're the lab rats really for all these drugs because <laughs> they'll just take whatever. <laughs> And the unfortunate thing is they always tend to take higher and higher and higher doses, which is good from a learning what goes wrong perspective, which is not great for the people involved, but you know what I mean? Um, But unfortunately as well, they all tend to not tell other people what they're doing, um, which leads to a situation where people keep making the same fucking mistakes because, oh, I don't take those drugs when you go into their house and they have this medicine cabinet full of fucking like all of these drugs that they don't supposedly take, you know, but anyway, look, that's a story from another day. Um, there's other ones that also interact with this, this hunger stuff. Uh, one of them, which is uh, interesting enough um, because you wouldn't necessarily expect it is a uh, melanotan too, um, which stimulates uh, melanogenesis, which is, you know, tanning effectively, right? That's what it is, you know? Um, and you might be thinking like, what, like, why are you taking a drug that would, make you more tanned or make you more like brown effectively like you know you're getting that kind of tanning you're getting that melanogenesis um why would that interact with as a like obesity treatment drug however it has the side effect of hunger suppression right which is really interesting because again obviously what we're looking for is to affect that whole energy in energy out equation and if you take this drug unfortunately again i think you have to inject it um you could get a sick tan while you get fucking shredded because <laughs> you're uh, not hungry because you got this hunger suppression, you know? However, again, look, I'm probably not going to recommend or I would not recommend in general because I'm not a doctor. Um, this one, because there are more effective drugs out there and it's not, there are side effects. One of the side effects is uh, boners, uh, just in case anyone was wondering. Um, so look, there, it is what it is. Do you have any thoughts on melanotan too? Because look, it's not something that I would generally recommend even looking into too much because while it's interesting that it has this side effect of hunger suppression, I'm like, ultimately like, you know, it's just not that great. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure it's just highly unregulated and isn't actually prescribed for anything. So it, it, if you're getting it, you're likely getting it like, you know, black market stuff. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, then the next one, which is actually another one that's really, really fucking interesting. And that is leptin, right? Because most people are aware of leptin and ghrelin, um, in terms of leptin uh, and satiety and stuff, but like you can actually inject leptin, right? Like you can actually inject leptin and get the effects of leptin, right? Which is really interesting again, in the context of, first of all, people dealing with obesity, but then also people dealing with the effects of, you know, we'll say, uh, extended dieting in terms of like you know bodybuilders that kind of stuff but do you have any thoughts on leptin as an intervention for obesity gary yeah leptin was super interesting um like when it was first discovered because it's not very long since it was discovered and it was you know an area of of excitement in terms of research like you know but unfortunately it just isn't actually that useful unless you have leptin deficiency which is very rare but um 
does does occur and in those on that like we will actually touch on that leptin deficiency later on but anyway yeah and in 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 those individuals with uh leptin deficiency it's fantastic that leptin has been isolated and synthesized so that's that's brilliant but um doesn't really look like there's much of a um, a role for actual uh, leptin use otherwise um leptin and ghrelin are often thought of as being kind of you know, opposite sides of the scale where leptin is going to increase satiety, ghrelin is going to increase hunger. And there have even been, I think, some um, experimental trials on vaccination against ghrelin as well, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, but I'm not sure they've actually uh, led anywhere either. So yeah, there, like there's literally thousands and thousands of, of potential therapeutic avenues here. Um, a lot of them just end up going nowhere. Uh, but there's definitely a lot that's that's there for the future as well uh but but yeah leptin yeah if you've got a leptin deficiency brilliant otherwise just yeah and also like again you have to inject this so you have to be thinking of the intervention itself how you actually administer it most people don't want to inject stuff as a general rule unless you're a bodybuilder maybe <laughs> um or a heroin junkie um so you have to inject it that's a barrier to it it also seems to be quite expensive from what i can gather um, mm. and like you said like it it's not it's not excessively like kind of effective you know like it's not like it's just not what people thought it would be you know and, and then also we have to deal with the fact that like you can get left in resistance you know so it's not just a drug that you can just keep taking more of and more of and more of it's just like you know insulin it's like well insulin's a little bit different because it could immediately kill you and um, but it's like you can get insulin resistance you know so you can get leptin resistance and this is something that again obese individuals potentially have to deal with um not from just taking the drug just from general life you know just the the the, the lifestyle that they lead right um but then also look gary mentioned that there's individuals out there that are potentially leptin deficient you know like they just don't make this we'll call it a satiety hormone it does a lot more than that but we'll call it a satiety hormone right um and if you're obviously deficient in a hormone that makes you satiated so you never feel full you're going to overeat, you know, like think about why you stop eating when you are eating your plate of food. You know, you're, usually it's either because you eat the whole plate of food or you're full, you're done eating, you know, like if, imagine you never felt full, you know, you're just constantly in a state of like, maybe not hungry, like not, it's not necessarily hunger, but not full anyway, you know, like you can never actually fill up with food, you know, um, that's obviously going to lead you to overconsume food. Right? And <laughs> um, so if you have a, an inbuilt error in, you know, your, your genes, uh, that code for, you know, leptin synthesis, um, and you have a deficiency in leptin as a result, like the only way you can actually fix that is with leptin injections or the next intervention, which we'll call like genetic alteration. Like you could use something like CRISPR technology, you know, you could use that to intervene and edit your genome and thus not be leptin deficient anymore, you know, produce a normal amount of leptin in response to your lifestyle. Right. Um, and that's probably a, a little ways off in terms of like, it's not something that we do right now, as far as I'm aware, like I'm actually in, uh, <clears throat> invested in a load of companies that uh, are like, you know, genomics revolution type companies, because I think that will be a, a huge thing in the next five to 10 years. However, right now it's kind of one of those like pie in the sky type, like 
oh, we don't, we know this is a thing that we could do. And like you constantly see in the, the media, this new thing comes out like, oh, we're able to use CRISPR technology and um, CRISPR-Cas9 technology to edit this part of the genome. And we cured blindness. Like that was one that came out a while ago, you know, um, or we did something with this other disease and we cured it because it was a genetic abnormality, um, which is really fucking fascinating. And again, in this context of obese individuals, if you have a leptin deficiency, you know, editing your genome would be incredibly beneficial to not have a leptin deficiency anymore, right? Um, and there are other, you know, genes involved in obesity in terms of, you know, hunger regulation, satiety regulation, in terms of like, even like your ability to store body fat, like there's going to come a point in time where you could, I don't know, maybe effectively always be insulin sensitive. Like you could, there's going to be genes found that it's like, oh, this codes for this, that also interacts in this pathway. And you can basically end up with a, a phenotype that you only build muscle, you know, like the, it, it's potential like there, you know, cause there are other animals that like we talked about previously, like chimpanzees, they don't store body fat or they do store body fat, but like they just have lower levels of body fat than us, you know? And so you could argue that we could genetically become more like them, you know, again, it's not beneficial as we talked about because, you know, humans are the top of the fucking food chain, my boys, um, because we have extreme adaptability. And one of those extreme adaptabilities is the ability to store fat and thus, you know, survive long periods of time without food. Um, but yeah, like CRISPR therapeutics, phenomenal for any of these gene uh, alteration or abnormalities. However, not something that you're probably likely to go into your doctor's office right now and be like, yo, I want no. that fucking, I want those uh, crisps that they were talking about. Uh, like, that's that's not going to be a case. Do you have anything to say on the, the genomics revolution, Gary, and the, the genetic altering revolution? Uh, no, and I do actually have to urgently finish up the podcast, so I might let you finish up if you don't mind. That's We have two more to talk about. So Naltrexambropropion and uh, Orlistat is what's left. And then we're just going to touch on the, the bariatric surgery. That's just touch on it because it's not something that like. Yeah, well, I'm I'm peeing, so I'll be back. Fantastic. Um, I'll let Gary come back for the antidepressants one because it's cool for that. There's another one, <clears throat> Orlistat, um, which is a drug, an intervention that can be used, um, which basically stops, well, I say inhibits fat absorption, right? Which is also a really interesting, first of all, mechanism of action, but also interesting in how it alters our ability to actually again alter that kind of calories in calories out equation because if you're not able to absorb fat from the diet you know like it's basically every gram you eat of fat that's nine calories per gram like if you are getting to a stage where you don't absorb those calories but you still get to enjoy eating them in terms of like again mouthfeel in terms of the foods that you eat you inherently reduce calories because you're not able to absorb them you know um so orlistat is a drug that binds the fat in the intestines and you know stops it being absorbed which again incredibly beneficial for uh reducing the amount of calories that you consume well not even consume the amount of calories that you actually take in um, and absorb into your actual body not into your like digestive tract however again it's not without its side effects it does generally have the effect of giving people you know some some relatively unpleasant side effects in terms of they have like we'll call it more uh liquidy stools uh, because obviously there's more fat bound up in those actual stools themselves and as a result like they don't like no one wants to basically have kind of like this semi-diarrhea all the time uh with, with the oil of that you know so again 
it's it's one of those things where i'm like this is kind of cool but there's also other side effects not just of the like you know oily stools it's like you know there are fat soluble vitamins that our body needs and if you are not getting them in like you are going to cause ill health you know it's not like these are just oh conditionally essential it's like no your body needs vitamin a like <laughs> you know so if you're not actually able to absorb it because you're not actually taking in any fat like that's potentially an issue for you overall you know um do you have anything to say on the orlistat gary uh no just to, again just to reinforce the point that you said that the main uh well if this firstly this is actually uh, prescribed in Ireland a little bit more regularly than a lot of the other ones, I think. Um, so orally stat is one that will come up uh, fairly regularly if you look into obesity medications. Um, but again, the tolerability can be limited by that fact of uh, that you're basically just excreting, excreting extra fat um, in your feces, which, you know, isn't particularly nice. So, yeah, it's not in my, again, in my uneducated, stupid eyes, I'm like, this is just not one that I'd be like, this is just not that cool, you know? Um, but anyway, Gary, we also have the other one of the antidepressants, uh, the naltrexone bupropion. Eh? bupropion. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because it might seem a bit weird at the start to be like, oh, this is an antidepressant. Like, what are we talking about that in relation to obesity? But what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so like naltrexone is an opioid receptor antagonist. So that's one that you'll actually see with in relation to um substance use disorder so people um who are you know trying to come off alcohol for example and uh, opioids uh, you'll see naltrexone come up there um but also bupropion which basically is is involved in <coughs> excuse me involved in um, neurotransmitter reuptake again so like that's there's there's multiple different effects and generally that's what you see with a lot of centrally acting drugs like they can affect serotonergic noradrenergic dopaminergic uh, signaling so there's multiple different effects there um but yeah again these uh, this is sold as a a combination i'm not sure again of, of prescription rates in ireland um but i know it's prescribed in the u.s and again acts centrally so primarily uh, what this is going to achieve is um satiety or reduced food reward um, and obviously then lead to reductions in caloric intake uh, doesn't really have any effect on energy expenditure as far as i'm aware again we're acting primarily here to reduce food intake yeah and also if you ever read the research especially with oh, a few different things that would be relevant for like you know health and fitness stuff like low dose naltrexone is used for a, a few different things but mm-hmm. again beyond the scope of this podcast um but yeah, look, we'll move on to the next one as we have actually just uh, some actual interesting ones before we get on to the, the, the surgery stuff. Um, one of the ones that you might not initially think, and it's obviously never going to actually be prescribed, even though it would actually be effective, <laughs> um, is just, and again, this is also one that's like a, a natural one in case those people out there, they're like, oh, big pharma, they don't want to, I, I don't want to use big pharma. Okay, tapeworms, right? Like tapeworms. We just talked about Orlistat in terms of being a fat blocker. How about just a fucking calorie blocker, right? Imagine you just had worms in your digestive tract that ate the calories instead of you, (laughs) you know? So phenomenal intervention for reducing your uh, caloric intake, you know, just take a lot of tapeworms, eat them, eat a lot of tapeworm eggs. You know, they used to sell them um, as a medical treatment. Um, You could also get them in those fucking magazines. Um, (laughs) But take a load of tapeworm eggs, eat them. You now have easy fat loss because you could eat all the fuck you want, but 
you don't actually get to eat them because the tapeworms are eating them. Um, and then you get fat loss, you know? However, obviously you have to get rid of those tapeworms at some stage and nobody wants to pull tapeworms out their ass. And that's probably the biggest inhibiting factor for this being used. Um, obviously, again, like the, we need calories, we need energy, we need nutrients. And if these tapeworms are eating all your nutrients, that's not beneficial. Um, not really anyway. <laughs> so uh, this is unlikely to be one that's, you know, regularly uptaken. However, it is one of those ones that this is potentially an intervention. Like if you're looking at it from the perspective of like an alien looking down and going like, well, what potential ways could we solve this issue? This is one of those ways. But again, side effect profile, the fact that you have to fucking take tapeworms and nobody wants to basically say like, oh, I have a parasite, like, because that's what it is. Um, it's unlikely to be used, you know? And again, like nobody wants to pull tapeworms out their ass. I have never met someone that's like, that's actually what I do on my Friday night. Really get off to it. It's fucking phenomenal, you know? They're just, it's just not happening. Do you have any thoughts on uh, the use of tapeworms for uh, the management of obesity, Harry? Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're going to stoop to that level... Nah, sorry, just not nah. get your priorities straight. <laughs> Fair. Um, then another one, which is an interesting one, and just to kind of finish out the interventions before we just touch on the surgery, because we're not going to touch on the surgery for too long, um, is like fecal transplants, right? And this is actually a really interesting one, but I actually don't think it is overly effective in humans. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, at least in my mind, at least, uh, I don't know about the actual research. Um, but like fecal transplants in terms of like your gut microbiome does a lot of stuff for you, right? We're not going to get into that because we'd be here all day with another podcast, right? And neither of us are gut microbiome experts, right? And uh, effectively, there is a lot of research to show in mice, rats, rodentia, like rodents, um, that if you transplant the microbiome, so the gut bacteria, uh, of an obese mouse or rather the other way around of a, uh, a normal weight mouse into an obese mouse and vice versa. Then again, I suppose, um, they effectively change phenotype, right? And what I mean by that is like, if you transplant the normal weight rats gut microbiome into the obese rats microbiome, um, into their gut, I mean, they effectively start becoming like a, a normal weight rat. So they were an obese rat. They got this fecal transplant and then they became a, a normal weight rat, right? This again caused a huge flurry of research into this area, huge of like, oh, this is, you know, we were able to, to solve this. All you have to do is take someone else's poop, you know, someone healthy weights poop, right? Um, and like, there are, there are potential ways where we could argue that this is a beneficial intervention for certain issues. However, like in my mind, at least I'm like, look, humans don't traditionally perform coprophagy, right? Like we don't traditionally eat shit, right? rodents do right like they actually do right and like dogs do it as well like you see dogs eat shit right and so they are more receptive to we'll call it fecal transplants more receptive to altering their microbiome based on the environment based on the shit that they eat literally um because that is how that is part of their their we'll call it their genetic makeup that is part of their you know, how they interact with the environment. That's how they get signals about the environment. That's how they get beneficial bacteria, blah, blah, blah. That's not what humans do. Humans get beneficial bacteria in their gut from vaginal delivery and breastfeeding. And I suppose like kisses and stuff as well, especially from your mother. Um, 
that's how we get our microbiome right and obviously like that's not the whole way like eating dirt as a kid and you know that's why kids put every fucking thing into their mouth they literally will pick up whatever is around them and put it into their mouth and that is again them basically sampling the world um however we don't practice coprophagy like your toddler is not going into the toilet and shoving shit into their mouth right like even toddlers are like oh keep me away from poop you know like they, they don't want to do that right um so look fecal transplants in my mind like and i think as well in the research it's just not that effective um what are your thoughts gary yeah i would not recommend have you not tried it well i have which is why i said i would not recommend oh all right yeah nice um but yeah look again look this is just not something that i think is going to first of all get a lot of mainstream traction or second of all be an intervention that works effectively for people you know and um, both because the intervention itself like you have to eat it you know and um, but then also it just doesn't seem to be that effective so gary i'm gonna let you talk about the uh bariatric surgery or all these surgical interventions that we could potentially do if you are dealing with obesity and if you wouldn't mind also just covering why you would potentially use a surgical intervention rather than like a a lifestyle intervention or potentially a pharmacological intervention because i think that is also important for people to realize that you know while it can seem like a oh get out of jail free card like a kind of cop out of like oh just get surgery and you get weight loss. Um, it's not really the case. Like, obviously, like we're not talking necessarily about like a, what's what's that stuff called? Um, where you liposuction? Um, like that's not really all that beneficial no. because again, lifestyle habits and stuff hasn't changed. Like you might actually get some weight loss from that, obviously, because they take fat out. But it's not. It's just not effective, right? No. But anyway, what are your thoughts, Gary? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're talking about indications for medication, you're basically looking at a BMI of greater than 30 without any comorbidities or um, the presence of obesity associated comorbidities with a BMI of between 27 to less than 30, basically. Um, So they're the the types of indications you're looking at for medication. And basically for surgery, um, you're generally looking at a BMI that's much higher, so greater than 40 or greater than 35 with, again, um, those comorbidities associated with obesity. Um, I basically like, like the lifestyle intervention is, is the mainstay of trying to intervene on obesity, but where that doesn't work, medication might be considered and where that doesn't work, surgery might be considered. And again, this is totally going to vary depending on, um, patient preference, uh, whether or not a patient is going to be a soup, uh, uh, appropriate for surgery. Like does a person already have advanced, uh, heart failure or something that would contraindicate them from being eligible for surgery? Are they public? Are they private, et cetera? All these things are going to vary um, or, or influence the, the decision-making there. But in terms of, of surgical intervention, effectively what you're trying to achieve is basically rewiring the gastrointestinal system, so to speak, um, in such a way that the person is going to be fuller uh, much quicker and as a result is going to be eating far less calories and is going to lose far more weight than they would be able to if they were just engaging in a behavioral intervention. And there's a couple of different approaches. The two primary surgeries that you'll hear of will be um, a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass or sleeve gastrectomy. And effectively, both of these um, involve um, 
reconfiguring the stomach in some way, either through just a bypass with a small little pouch um, or basically turning the stomach, removing most of it and then turning it into effectively no more than just a little tube. And both of these things effectively reduce the volume available for food to enter within the so-called stomach. And then as a result, the person is going to be tolerant of far less food. They're not going to want to eat as much. They're going to eat less calories. And as a result, they're going to uh, lose a lot more weight. So um, is it effective? Yes. But with any surgery, you're always dealing with, um, you know, again, much like drugs have side effects, surgeries obviously uh, carry risks, whether that be related to uh, wound site infection, um, complications from the surgery or the anesthesia, etc. So there's always there's always risks there. Um, so yeah, they're, they're basically the mainstay of, of the surgical options. There are other options, um, that are a little bit more complex, but they're, they're the two primary ones. And again, it's not necessarily a shortcut as such because the person is engaging in, um, a surgical intervention, which, you know, there's risk associated with that. And ultimately, again, it still ends up coming down to calories in calories out because fundamentally what you're changing there is, um, basically the calories inside of things primarily. Yeah. And this is also one of those things as well, where again, it comes back to that initial equation that we've talked about, but then also you get side effects from this, not just even the surgery. Let's say the surgery all goes well, everything fantastic. You heal up. Like there's still downstream effects where you are eating less calories now. Yeah. Okay, cool. But you generally have lower like absorption of different minerals, vitamins and stuff mm-hmm. like that, because you're not actually able to eat enough food to first of all, get the, the, the stuff that you want. But then also, you know, if we're fucking around effectively with the plumbing, it's like you potentially aren't able to, like it's not spending enough time where it needs to, to get, you know, absorbed and stuff. Right. And um, so there are some issues with that. Again, look, it's outside of our wheelhouse because it's something you need to discuss with your doctor. Yes. And ideally, and I think it is the case, there would be some intervention with some sort of registered dietitian thereafter. So that again, you're overcoming any of those issues with malabsorption or fucking whatever. Right. And so that kind of concludes the uh, pharmacological and alternative therapies for obesity. And before we wrap this up, Gary, do you have anything else to say with regards to any of that? Um, Anything at all? No, my uh, pro obesogenic uh, dinner is waiting for me on the table, so I'm in. Uh, I'll be leaving urgently. Fantastic! And your your girlfriend's about to beat you up. Absolutely, I'm dead. You won't hear from me next week. I won't be on the podcast. Nice, um, but yeah, look, that was hopefully interesting. As we said at the start, two of us are idiots. This is not medical advice. Take from it what you will some of these things potentially maybe you think is interesting enough to go and look into maybe again, it gives you that perspective that, okay, this is more complex than, you know, when people make these caricatures of like, Oh, uh, you know, calorie counting doesn't work. There's more to it. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, here you go. Here's the more to it. These are there's hundreds of thousands of drugs that work through different mechanisms and they all, all of them lead back to, that same equation of managing that calories in calories out, right? In some regard, some of them work on the brain, some of them work on the nervous system, I suppose. Some of them work on, you know, the actual stomach or the actual uh, plumbing, we'll say like someone, like they all work through different mechanisms, but they all alter that equation in some regard. So yes, hundred percent, there is more to it than calories in calories out. However, 
that doesn't discount the fact that it all comes back to calories in, calories out. But anyway, look, guys, that kind of concludes the obesity series. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I hope you listened to them all with, you know, fervor and attention. Um, and if you do have any questions, look, we have a Facebook group. Join it, ask questions there. And uh, I'll let Gary uh, conclude the podcast. Yep, that's it. Follow us. If you'd like, Triage Method, Skinny Guys, The Real Paddy Farrell, and Brian O'Hengisa on our respective social media accounts. Of course, we have coaching spaces available if you do need um, to uh, get help with your training, nutrition, or otherwise. Do get in touch, and we're always putting out new content. You guys know that. Subscribe to the newsletter, join the Facebook group, follow the social media, and if you're a coach looking for your own education, do join the Coach's Corner, and that's everything you need. Fantastic. And we will see you next week, guys.